Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Marisa Lagos in for Amina Kim. Coming up on Forum, as the war between Russia and Ukraine drags on without any clear momentum on either side, Republicans in Congress are balking at more U.S. aid to defeat Russian President Vladimir Putin, while the Biden administration pursues a deal that would include tougher border enforcement. We'll discuss the standoff over Ukraine funding in Congress and get the latest on what's happening on the battlefield as winter arrives. That's next after this news. This is Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos and Fermina Kim. At a joint news conference with Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky at the White House last week, President Biden urged the U.S. Congress to approve aid for Ukraine. Putin is banking on the United States failing to deliver for Ukraine. We must, we must, we must prove him wrong. But Biden's efforts to get aid approved stalled in Congress this week after it was combined with proposed changes to border and immigration policy. Joining us now to talk about the latest in the war in Ukraine and the uncertain future of funding are Steve Pfeiffer, Pfeiffer, excuse me, affiliate at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University. He's also former ambassador to Ukraine and a senior director at the National Security Council in the Clinton administration. Stephen, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. We also have Joan Greaves, senior political reporter at The Guardian. Joan, good morning. Good morning. Thank you. So, Stephen, I'd love to start with you. Um, President Zelensky again yesterday rejected a suggestion that Ukraine could be starting to lose the war against Russia. I I want to kind of hear your assessment of what is happening on the ground militarily there. Yeah, Marissa, there seems to be this narrative taking hold, but Ukraine is now losing the war. I think that that misses the mark. Uh, Ukraine, certainly the counteroffensive that they launched last summer did not succeed in the way that we had hoped. And you can say that at this point, Ukraine is not winning, but I don't think you can say Ukraine is losing. If you look, for example, at the amount of territory that Russia occupies today compared to a year ago, there hasn't been much change. And if you make the comparison to the summer of 2022, in fact, Ukraine has taken back a lot of the territory that Russia occupied in the first months of the war. I look at the last 18 months, and with the exception of Bakhmut, the Russians on the ground have not really scored a major victory, and Bakhmut was pyrrhic for a Mm. 
a town of little strategic uh, value, they lost thousands of people. So why then do we see sort of increased um, confidence being projected by Putin and others in Russia? And, you know, we should say, and, and we'll get into the politics here at home, but it's not just the U.S., right? We saw Europe kind of balk at an aid package as well. Um is this a case of, uh, is the narrative shifting or like, why do you think this is all happening? Yeah, a couple of things. One is, I think the Russians now, as opposed to six or seven months ago, saw that their defensive lines largely were able to contain the Ukrainian counteroffensive. The problem for the Russians, though, now is the Ukrainians are going on to the defensive. And what we've seen in this two years of war is that the defense has significant advantages. I also think that Putin has taken heart from the debate here in the United States in Congress. We've been talking about an assistance program or a supplemental bill to assist Ukraine now for three months, and Congress is going home without having passed it. And then the Russians see things like in the European Union, Hungary blocked an assistance program by the EU. So I think those are the sorts of things, but if the West can get its act together on assistance for Ukraine... That very much, I think, reverses the confidence that they have in Moscow. Can you talk a little bit about what is at stake if Ukraine loses this war, if Russia wins? Um, if, you know, the West does withdraw, what are, what are we talking about? What do you foresee? Yeah, I mean, the United States has defined now more, for more than seven decades a stable and secure Europe as a vital national interest. If Russia wins, Europe is not going to be stable. It's not going to be secure. Moreover, my concern is that a Kremlin emboldened by a win in Ukraine might look elsewhere, Moldova, or perhaps even to one of the Baltic states. Now, in the case of Ukraine, we're sending money, we're sending weapons. If Mr. Putin's ambitions extend to, say, eastern Estonia, it's going to be American troops. It's better to stop Putin in Ukraine. Now, yesterday, Putin said he would never attack a NATO country. Two years ago, Putin was saying he would never attack Ukraine. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about when we talk about military aid coming from the U.S.? What is it? I think that there's a sense often in the public that it's sort of a check that, you know, is being sent. Right. Um, and that, you know, and we already have um, a question uh, from a listener, you know, about just like what, you know, what would $61 billion accomplish that $100 billion hasn't? And then when it's done, what's next? What's the end game? Um, before we get to that, maybe just talk a little bit about how this works, because some of this is almost a stimulus for the American uh, military yeah. uh, industry, right? No, exactly. I mean, we don't send a check uh, to Ukraine. What we do do, the bulk of that military assistance money is actually spent in the United States. And it's spent to have American companies either produce weapons for Ukraine or in many cases, the U.S. military takes weapons out of its stockpile, sends those weapons to Ukraine, and then uses the money basically to backfill and 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 buy new weapons. And in some cases, the U.S. military actually they're getting rid of older systems. So, for example, when we send ATACMS missiles to Ukraine, what they're doing is probably not buying ATACMS missiles for the new U.S. stocks, but looking to provide uh, to purchase a precision strike missile, which is, has a longer range and is more accurate. So this is a process where, in effect, we're hoping to modernize and upgrade the U.S. military. But maybe 80 to 90 percent of those monies are spent here in the United States. 
So what do you say to people who are skeptical? I mean, you've sort of laid out some of the the argument from a sort of geopolitical standpoint as to why we would want Ukraine to succeed. But, you know, I think it's not unusual for Americans to feel like, why are we spending our tax dollars abroad? Sure. And I can understand that. But again, I think American national security is on the line here. If Russia wins in Ukraine, we're going to face a much more difficult situation in Europe. Europe will be demanding more American time in terms of senior leaders time, but also more military resources. Uh, And again, we have in Ukraine a country that is showing the determination. Ukraine is not asking for American troops. They're prepared to defend their own country. What they're asking for, though, is to help uh, help them get the means to defend that country. And again, if they lose, it's going to be a very dark picture for the United States. Well, clearly we are seeing a lot of pushback on the right in the United States. I want to play a cut from Congressman Matt Gates, perhaps one of the farthest right members of Congress, talking about about this issue. I don't believe that the American people want to pay another $100 billion to figure out which guy gets to run Crimea. Mm. We, we seem to almost be, be hitting a, a point there in the conflict where the Russian-speaking territories look very differently than what you see from the Western-leaning cities in Ukraine like Kiev. So I, I'm far more concerned about what will happen to our people if we, consider, if we continue this, this uh, tomfoolery. So, uh, Joan... Uh, Grieve from The Guardian. Uh, Talk a little bit about what you hear there and if this is sort of the broader message you're hearing from Republicans who are balking at this aid. Yes, I think that the, um, you know, over the course of the past year, especially, we have seen a growing amount of resistance to continuing uh, Ukraine aid among uh, House Republicans, especially. I thought there was a really uh, telling moment in uh, September when uh, the House voted on a bill to provide some uh, funding to uh, train and equip um, uh, Ukrainian fighters. And uh, more than half of House Republicans actually opposed that bill. That felt like a real uh a real sign of how much things had shifted away from uh, uh, supporting Ukraine within the House Republican Conference, and I think it reflects a broader shift within the House, uh, within the Republican Party, uh, toward Donald Trump's more America first, first somewhat uh, isolationist view on how to conduct foreign policy. There is a sense that among some uh, Republicans that essentially that this they do not feel like this is their their fight, that they do not feel obligated to assist Ukraine, and they've been pretty, um, you know. Uh, you know they, they've not really been receptive to the argument from uh, Joe Biden and many others that in order to support Ukraine and to uh, avoid a much larger war in that region, then we we need to send them this money. So what I mean, you said that, you know, this isn't sort of our war to fight. Is there an articulated viewpoint as to the sort of concerns um, that Stephen laid out about where Putin would go next? Or is that just sort of not being talked about? I think that, you know, I think that that I think it feels very uh, I think that to Republicans, I think that feels like a very like, you know, a very theoretical like, you know, idea. But, you know, the thing is that, you know, as Stephen laid out very, you know, very articulately, you know, it doesn't take a great, you know, a sort of logical leap to assume that if if Putin feels like he can, you know, really just have full be be able to like run into to invade Ukraine and, you know, is still and uh, overall succeed at that because we've cut off this funding, then what's to stop him from moving forward and, you know, potentially looking to uh, expand uh, Russia's borders beyond Ukraine? 
And uh, so I think that, you know, I think that, you know, House, many House Republicans view uh, those sort of warnings as, you know, they, they aren't taken very seriously. But of course, you know, the moment that that actually becomes a reality, I think that the fear is that it will be too late to stop it. Right. I mean, uh, Stephen, jump in here. Like what I know you travel to D.C. Sometimes you're talking to some of these members. How do you try to make this case? Now, I I think, uh, unfortunately, there's a part of the Republican Party that simply no longer thinks about national security in serious terms. So if you look at Vladimir Putin, you know, he talks about Ukraine. He doesn't accept the idea of a Ukraine as a sovereign, independent state. He talks about sometimes recovering historic Russian land. Well, if you look at a map of the uh, Russian Empire in the late 19th century, you'd see that Finland, the three Baltic states, and much of Poland were once part of the Russian Empire. What happens if he starts thinking about Estonia or Latvia as historic Russian land, and do we see a repeat? And at that point, these countries are members of NATO, and the United States is committed to their defense. Again, it seems to me self-evident that helping a country which has a large army, which is you know, combat capable, which has showed huge determination to defend their own country, helping them defend themselves and stopping Putin is usually in our national interest. And it's a defense bargain compared to what we might have to spend, both in terms of American treasure, but American lives, right. if we have to wait and confront Russia down the road. We're talking about the war in Ukraine and battles in Washington over military aid with Stephen Pfeiffer, affiliate at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford and a former ambassador to Ukraine. Also, here is Joan Greve, senior political reporter at The Guardian. And we want to hear from you. Do you support more aid to Ukraine? What questions do you have about the war? Do you think Ukraine funding should be tied to border policy? We're going to get into that after the break. You can email your comments and questions to form at kqed.org or find us on our social channel at KQED Forum. That's Twitter or X, Instagram, or our digital community on Discord. You can also give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. Marisa Lagos in today for Mina Kim. And we were talking about the war in Ukraine and the debate over aid in Washington, D.C. with Stephen Pfeiffer at Stanford, former ambassador to Ukraine, and Joan Greve, senior political reporter at The Guardian. Also joining us in a minute will be Democratic Congresswoman Nanette Barragon, who represents California's 44th Congressional District in Los Angeles. Um, before we bring in the Congresswoman, Joan, I would love for you to kind of update us 
on the very uh, intense machinations over the past week. Um, We saw this move by Republicans to tie Ukrainian aid to um, southern border funding here at home um, and a real push by Democratic Majority Leader Chuck Schumer to get something done before Christmas and then it all kind of fell apart. (laughs) So January is looking pretty busy in D.C., huh? Yes, it most certainly is. Yes. Uh, as is usually the case with Congress, uh, the uh, artificial deadlines don't tend to work that well. And, you know, that was essentially what the Senate Majority Leader, uh, Democrat Chuck Schumer, tried to do with this supplemental funding bill. He tried to say essentially that we are the the, the Senate is absolutely going to take a vote on a supplementing funding bill this week. And that needs to happen. And well, of course, it didn't happen. Uh, essentially, what uh, we do know that uh, negotiations are ongoing and they are trying to reach an agreement with uh, Republicans on uh, a supplemental funding bill that will cover both aid to Ukraine, aid to Israel, uh, and as some money for um, uh, some immigration measures. Uh, but uh, we haven't had a lot of transparency into where those, uh, what the, what the, where the negotiations stand, and specifically like what concessions uh, Democrats are willing to make when it comes to uh, immigration policy. And uh, that's been really fr- that lack of transparency has been really frustrating for uh, members of both parties. And you know there is an, a very real possibility here that you know even if we get into January and they do announce a deal, that that deal will completely fall apart once it actually you know is like subjected to public scrutiny and uh, members actually get to read it. And so, uh, so yeah, so we're basically nowhere is the short of it. <laughs> and uh, we are heading into January with uh, the hope of somehow uh, you know uh, being able to reach uh, a deal on that bill and also that uh, lingering up. Uh, partial shutdown deadline as well. Just that little thing. They have right. To worry that, about. Minor, yeah. that minor thing that's been so easy to avoid in the past. I mean, okay. there are some broad brushstrokes we've heard come out of these negotiations on border. Um, can you lay it on? I mean, some of those are making it easier to expel migrants quickly. Is that is that fair? That's, yes, that's right. So what Republicans have said is that their sort of template for the negotiations is this bill called uh, HR2, which uh, passed the House in May uh, with only Republican votes and now has been stalled in the Senate. And uh, that bill has been really um, criticized heavily by many Democrats because they feel it is just far too severe. It would really severely uh, restrict um, access to and uh, eligibility for the uh, asylum in the U.S. Uh, It would uh, restart uh, construction of the border wall. And it would also really limit options for uh, parole uh, for migrants uh, coming to the U.S. So, uh, you know, Democrats have looked at that bill and said basically it is a non-starter for them. But Republicans are saying that, you know, that whatever deal potentially comes out of these talks has to at least in some form look like some of the uh, the provisions outlined in H.R. 2. And so, you know, that is it seems like, you know, from at least from what we can tell, it does seem like the the two sides remain uh, far apart uh, in what they would like to see come out of immigration. But um, out of this, these immigration talks. But, you know. We'll, yeah. we'll see. It is to be determined. Well, that and that House bill, I mean, is a pretty much a non-starter, I think, in, in you know, in, in whole for Democrats. So certainly, um, though, and, and I want to bring in Representative uh, Barragon and Annette Barragon from uh, Los Angeles's 44th Congressional District and chair of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. Congresswoman, welcome to Forum. Thank you for having me. So uh, you just heard Joan Greaves sort of lay out what, what we've been hearing. Are any other details that you have seen in terms of a border component to this Ukrainian aid? Um, uh, what are you? Yeah. What are you hearing on the Hill? Well, first, let me say this is not a real negotiation. Mm-hmm. This is a hostage taking. And the reason I say that is because it's not like we're going into a room. First of all, this, the Hispanic caucus has 
no senators or members at the table, which is from the outset, just unacceptable and should not be happening. But this is not really a negotiation because Republicans are in a room not offering anything. They're just saying, this is what we want. You need to give it to us. And if you don't give it to us, we're not going to give you Ukraine aid. And so they're really holding hostage critical funding for America's allies at the expense of trying to get through immigration policy changes that they cannot otherwise get through any kind of regular order. And so this is why I have been saying connecting and linking the foreign aid with the border and immigration conversation should not be happening Um, so that we can have a true conversation about what we need to do at the southern border and what kind of changes we could consider. I don't think people know what Republicans are saying no to. And I'm not sure if you've covered that, but the things that would be helpful at the southern border are things that they're saying no, they're not going to support, which is millions of dollars for more Border Patrol agents, millions of dollars for more CBP officers, millions of dollars uh, for asylum and immigration officers to help the, the border more orderly, even tons of money for ICE detention beds, more immigration judges, things that are actually going to help at the southern border, they're saying no to. Um, and that, for me, just sends a signal. They don't really want to help what's going on at the southern border, but they want to keep it bad so that they can continue to campaign on this. But some of the things on the table would be pretty drastic changes that would not be good for the asylum system or our immigration system. I mean, I I hear what you're saying. I also, you know, Republicans do control the House. And I think that the Biden administration and Democrats want to see the U.S., um, you know, stand with Ukraine. How I mean, how do you see a path for any sort of deal? I don't see a path uh, when you're seeing drastic, comprehensive um, immigration changes where there is no give and take. The American people want border security, but they want a balanced approach that are going to uplift immigrants. So the fact that um, they're trying to go toward things like expedited removal and expansion of that, that means more communities will be terrorized um, because you're going to have more deportations and people who've been for 20, 30 years could be caught up in that and also deported. They're talking about triggers, uh, shutdown triggers of the border. Something similar to a Title 42. Mm -hmm. If you look back at when Title 42 was in place in October of last year, we had more apprehensions at the southern border than if you compare to this year of of October because it didn't work and it doesn't work and that's not going to help fix the problem. Something else on the table Republicans want, they want to eliminate parole. Parole has been a tool the president has used to have orderly migration. If you take that tool away, and this was something used to bring Ukrainians into this country that were vulnerable, Afghans, uh, people facing persecution, you take that away, more people are going to come between ports of entry. So some of these things that they're looking at are not even going to help what is going on at the southern border. You know, you mentioned Republicans wanting to keep this sort of uh, front and center, the the border issue. Um, And... I'm curious, like, what you think an agreement would mean for Democrats politically. I mean, isn't there an argument that it could help Biden with some voters to appear tougher on the border at a time when people are concerned? Well, first of all, I don't think people know what the president has been doing um, on the border. Um, And 
the fact that Republicans are blocking his efforts to make things better. Uh, absolutely, there is uh, an opportunity here to do something um, on the border and immigration policy, but it ha- it cannot be through a hostage-taking situation like this one, where they're offering nothing, no positive changes, no pathways, things that we know historically will help. And let's not forget that one of the reasons that the border is the way it is, is because it's been broken for decades. The former president was taking resources away. Um, one of the big things we we hear from migrants and from immigration groups is how long it takes for an asylum case to be adjudicated. Why don't we fix that? Mm-hmm. Why don't we make sure there's enough resources and funding to fix the, the backlog so that there is not an incentive for people to say, I'm going to go, it's going to take four years to have my case heard. That would be something, you know, we should move toward, but that investment has not been made yeah. um, from my colleagues across the aisle. Well, I got to say, it feels a little bit like whiplash because we're going back and forth between Ukraine and and this border, which, to your point, um, maybe, you know, one argument against tying them in legislation. But I am curious, like, where do you draw a line? I mean, are you willing to vote against aid to Ukraine if it's tied to a border, um, you know, provisions that, that you don't agree with? The the Ukraine aid is tied to border a border supplement that the president asked for. Uh, so that was already done at the beginning. Um, and I disagreed at the outset of that. Now what they're talking about is border policy changes. And will I have to vote against the package that has Ukraine dollars because of these draconian immigration policy changes? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, this is why we shouldn't be linking them together. I completely support Ukraine and I completely support the foreign aid package. I voted for that. Um, but this is not the way to get Democrats uh, to say, OK, Ukraine aid. And that is that we are going to take away um, asylum and immigration as we know it. We are a nation of immigrants and the economic impact of immigrants is huge to then shut that down and say we're going to turn away from our values Um I don't think it's the way to go. Yeah. Last question before I let you go, Representative. Um, Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed a law yesterday allowing local law enforcement to arrest people on suspicion of illegal entry. Uh, shades of SB 1170 in Arizona, which was struck down by the Supreme Court. Um How do you think that type of action by a state sort of plays into this broader uh, conversation? And, and what's your sort of just general reaction to that? Well, this is more of Abbott um, continuing to keep immigration in the news. You might remember when Title 42 ended, uh, there was not a spike in increase at the southern border. So what did he do? He put razor wire along uh, the Rio Grande Valley there, and he was trying to make other news, busting people. This is bad. This is going to result in racial profiling, unlawful arrest of citizens or lawful permanent residents. I believe Texas has no authority to conduct any kind of immigration policy. And I have joined the Hispanic Caucus and members of the Texas delegation to ask the Department of Justice to pursue legal action to prevent the enforcement of this law. That is Congresswoman Nanette Barragon. She is chair of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus and represents California's 45th district in Los Angeles County. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. 
We are getting a lot of calls. Also here with me is Stephen Pfeiffer at Stanford University and a former ambassador to Ukraine and Joan Greaves, senior political reporter at The Guardian. I want to have you two respond to some reaction we're getting. Um, Lewis writes, could you please address Republicans increasing support of Russia and Putin? How does he fit into their goals? Um, Stephen Pfeiffer, I mean, Trump has said he would end the war, presumably by cutting a deal with Putin. Um, How do you see all of this? No, I think uh, the former president has said that he could end the war in 24 hours. Uh, Nobody serious that I talk to has any idea how you could achieve that. Mm. Um, and, And the broader question that has puzzled me and to some extent dismayed me is that there is there seems to be support in part of the Republican Party for Vladimir Putin. Part of that may be because Putin has adopted some very uh, conservative social values that align with theirs, but they seem to overlook the fact that Vladimir Putin has taken Russia back to the worst of Soviet times. Uh, you know, if you call the what the Russians refer to officially as a special military operation in Ukraine as a war, you can go to jail for discrediting the Russian army. Um, This is somebody who has taken a country that in the 90s was a flawed democracy and has made it an outright autocracy. But I believe because of the alignment on some of these social issues, uh, Republicans are prepared to take a very positive look at Putin, which I think is mistaken. Yeah. And Joan Grieve, I mean, uh, talk about what we know about public sentiment here in the U.S. It, it, it is, as with a lot of issues, um, falls very much along party lines, but we are not seeing overwhelming support for Ukrainian aid from the U.S., right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. And, you know, when I talk to experts about that uh, trend and, you know, it does seem like there is um, sort of, um, it, you know, that as the, the war kind of drags on, it does seem that the uh, support for uh, more Ukraine aid does appear to be dipping down. Uh, and I was, uh, as I talked to experts about that, I think that, you know, the, one of the points that they raise is that, you know, for sending money abroad is not generally one of the most like popular things with the, the American people, you know, that is, hist- even though historically, you know, like there are many examples of how, how it has aided our, our own national security and also, you know, sort of the, like our, the security of our allies. And, and so, yes, it does seem like, you know, as the war drags on, like there does seem to be more uh, public resistance to continuing that aid. But, you know, as, you know, Joe Biden has and is, you know, many others have made the argument many times just because, you know, we feel like, you know, so there are some many Americans who feel like they're done with the war. The war is not done with us, you know. And so uh, it does seem that the um, that that aid does uh, in their minds desperately need to continue. I want to bring in a caller, Fred in Redwood City. Go ahead. My concern is there were several buildings that were blown up in Chechnya. And when it was investigated, one of the buildings didn't blow up. Mm. And when they went in, the explosives that didn't blow up were only available to the Russian military. That was strike one. The next time was Georgia. Nobody did anything about Pukin in Georgia. So now my concern is if we don't stop them, in the Ukraine, where do we stop him? Before he crosses the English Channel and goes into Great Britain? I'm very concerned about that. Yeah. Uh, Fred, thanks for the call. Um, I I mean, Stephen Pfeiffer, I think this is exactly what you're talking about, that this is not necessarily the end of Putin's designs on, you know, 
uh, going sort of backward, I mean, I think he, he yeah. views Ukraine as part of Russia. He views Ukraine as part of Russia, and I worry that he might view the Baltic states or even Finland also as part of Russia. Mm-hmm. Again, is that a huge possibility? You know, maybe not a huge possibility, but had you asked people five years ago, would you conceive that Russia would conduct the kind of invasion against Ukraine that it did in February 2022? People would have said zero chance. So I think we need to be humble about our ability to determine how far Vladimir Putin will go. And there's real reason to think that his ambitions may go well beyond just Ukraine. That's why I believe it's much in the U.S. interest to stop him in Ukraine. Yeah. Remember, not one American soldier has died in Ukraine. I mean, yeah, and I, I wonder, um, the other sort of thing we haven't touched on yet is, is the question of nuclear proliferation. We have a listener saying, my understanding is that when the Soviet Union broke up, Ukraine was persuaded to give up its nukes with the promise of protection should it come under yes. attack. And if that's true, this listener says, please don't let the GOP torpedo our commitment. Is When you think about this issue, is it just Ukraine no. or it goes beyond that, right? Well, actually, I was involved in those negotiations back in the 1990s. When the Soviet Union collapsed, Ukraine had on its territory the world's third largest nuclear arsenal, almost 2,000 strategic nuclear warheads that were designed, built, and deployed to destroy American cities. And Ukraine gave that up. We we wanted Ukraine to give those weapons up because they were pointed at American cities. The Ukrainians did. A big part of that Ukrainian decision was in 1994 when Russia committed to respect Ukraine's sovereignty, its independence, its territorial integrity, and Russia committed not to use force or threatened to use force against Ukraine. When we negotiated that, the Ukrainians asked us, the American officials, what will you Americans do if Russia violates this commitment? And we said, look, we will take initiative, we will do things. We were clear, we said, we're not going to commit American troops, but we will do things. I believe what the United States has been doing the last two years has been consistent with that commitment we gave the Ukrainians for doing something that was really important to us at the time back in the 90s, getting rid of those nuclear weapons. Right. And I would believe if we cut that support off, that would be a betrayal of that. That's Stephen Pfeiffer at Stanford, a former ambassador to Ukraine. Also with us is Joan Grieve at The Guardian. And we had Congresswoman Nanette Barragon here as well. We're talking about Ukrainian aid and the potential package in D.C. We'll be back after a short break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos in Fermina Kim. We're talking this morning about the war in Ukraine and battles in Washington, D.C. over U.S. military aid. And I want to bring in another caller. Kevin in San Jose, go ahead. Yes, uh, my question regards the uh, longer term um, aspects of this. Um, If uh, both sides dig in, as is the present situation right now, and this becomes just simply a defensive stalemate, who has a longer staying power, which would involve uh, the economy and outside financial assistance? And I'm thinking there's no way that Ukrainians can outlast the Russians. Yeah, thanks for the call, Kevin. I mean, uh, um, Stephen Pfeiffer, this is something I know you've written and thought a lot about, which is, and I think there's kind of two buckets here, right, Um, in terms of manpower and then military might. Um, Talk a little bit about where Russia's at. I mean, they've made a concerted decision to really draft folks not from the capital cities and and the sort of bigger, um, more powerful political places in Russia, right? Right. No, Putin sees this as a long war. He is going to fight it at least until November 2024 because he wants to see the outcome of the American election. Uh, I believe that Putin understands that if Donald Trump is elected, uh, that will be an end to American support for Ukraine. Now, what the Russians have done in mobilizing, uh, a lot of the units that are fighting Ukraine come from the Russian Far East, from the Russian Caucasus, And it looks like the Kremlin has taken some pains not to mobilize uh, populations in Moscow or St. Petersburg, the larger cities. But I see this war, it's really a contest. It's a question. Ukrainians see this war as existential. They're determined. So the question in my mind is, does the war and the steady flow of casualties back to Russia, they've lost or they've taken over 300,000 casualties thus far. Does that erode the will of the Russian elite and the Russian public to continue this war before the Ukrainians who have all the will in the world, this is existential for them, before the Ukrainians run out of the ammunition and arms, the ability to fight? That's the question. Well, and we can keep yeah. Ukraine in the game. And what about manpower for Ukraine? I mean, they've talked about very high goals of the number of uh, men they need to enlist on like a monthly basis, essentially. Yeah, Ukraine, I think, has some manpower issues. But remember, it's a country of 43 million. Most of the men have still remained in Ukraine. Um, And I believe that the Ukraine has the ability. What they're looking at now is mobilizing more, basically so that they can rotate people to the front and give some of those soldiers who've been fighting on the front lines for months now the opportunity to come back, you know, rest, recuperate, retrain. Uh, but it's it's a question, but I think it's a question that the Ukrainians can manage because there still is within Ukraine, you know, po- polls in Ukraine show 80, 90 percent of the population still believes that Ukraine should fight this war until they've driven the Russians completely out of the country. What about Russia? I know it's a little harder to, to, to gauge public opinion there, given um, the media landscape and, and Putin's control. But do we have any sense of where the Russian uh, population is at? Yeah. Polls that I've seen suggest that the Russians still basically support Vladimir Putin. Uh, although I, I have a question about those polls. I mean, if you're sitting somewhere in Novosibirsk and you get a phone call saying, do you support Vladimir mm-hmm. Putin? My guess is your bias is going to be to say yes. But I do wonder that at some point, do the casualties just reach the point where Russians, both in the general public, but also begin to conclude 
this war simply is not worth it. Well, David writes, I have no issue with Russians. My problem is the authoritarians who are in power in Russia. I fought in and helped win the Cold War, and now it's all coming unraveled. If we blame Russia for Putin, then we must also blame the United States for Trump. We must support democracy at home and abroad. I would like to do more to defeat Putin. And Mike from Cupertino. Mike, go ahead. Uh, yes, hi. Um the question is, uh, should we keep aiding uh, Ukraine? Yes, we should, because, um, you know, that's that's someone that's closer to Russia. And, you know, they, you know, they, uh, well, just like I said, you know, and um, uh, so you're we should just find a, a balance, and, you know, and uh, but anyways, uh, yeah, that's one thing we should. I think we should. And people that are against it should really uh, think about it. Why, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, what else? What else here? Uh, <laughs> and then Trump. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't trust Trump with uh, you know this whole I can cure everything in 24 hours and this and that. You know he's he's kind of like a you know someone you, you really can't trust and stuff. And um, so I mean that's all Thank I got to say. But yes, we should we should aid him. Yes. We Thank should you. Yeah. Him. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate the call, Joan. I wonder. Um, if you have any sense as to whether this could become a political liability for Republicans, like, is there an argument that, you know, if it looks like things are swinging toward Putin, that could, you know, create some political pressure? Or do you think the party is just sort of in Trump world? Yeah, I think I mean, I think it is very clear that the party is definitely in Trump world. But, you know, in terms of the, you know, as we look ahead in terms of thinking uh, less about we've been uh, talking about the very you know real world and important ramifications for Ukraine and Ukrainians. If like, you know, we, if this aid does not happen in terms of the, you know, sort of uh, maybe more uh, slightly more superficial political ramifications of it. You know, I think that if in fact we do not get uh, if it, the Congress does not approve more aid for Ukraine, and we start to see Putin make significant gains on the battlefield. It'll be interesting to see what impact that has on uh, these those really important swing voters who, you know, those independents who can make a really big difference in 24 uh, when it comes to both uh, the the, ra- the presidential race and congressional races, because, you know, there might be a change of heart if we do realize that you know that 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 it is make the lack that the lack of aid to Ukraine is making a significant difference. I think that you know there is this sense. Uh, you know, so one of the arguments that you see Republicans sort of bring forth is that well, you know, we've already given more than a hundred billion dollars to Ukraine, and like they, it's not less if they, you know, they have won, it's, and we're at a stalemate. The Ukraine has not won yet won this war, but I think it's important to remember that when this war started, there was a real concern that Russia was going to win it in a matter of weeks. You know, and so I think that. If, in fact, we do cut off aid and we do start to see, you know, Russia start to make those really big gains, it could start to shift some opinion, um, especially among those really crucial uh, independent voters. Yeah. Um, Olga from Oakland has a call. Olga, Olga, go ahead. Yes. Hi, Marisa. And hi, everybody. Um, I'm part Russian, part Ukrainian. So this issue is very Mm. obviously um, uh, difficult for, for me and my friends. To process, I have family in St. Petersburg and Moscow and Ukraine and Belarus and friends. And I see what's happening to the questions, uh, what Russians feel. I observe from conversations with my friends and family that younger population who have access to media outlets uh, in different languages have very different perspectives. They are against the war, absolutely. They're against uh, Putin. 
older generation, though, unfortunately, the ones who don't speak other languages and who have only access to propaganda in Russian, they either immediately or eventually swayed because if information is said to you deliberately and consistently, mm-hmm. that's what happens, unfortunately. So, so and I just wanted to emphasize also that people here, I don't think quite frankly understand what a lot of Russians are facing in terms of information, um, deliberate information, and yeah. no access to other information in other languages. And uh, all the population don't have, are not computer savvy, are not information savvy, are not languages savvy, and that deprives them of, of uh, perception. Absolutely. So. That's an excellent point, Olga, and I think speaks to how difficult it is to know whether, you know, opinion polls or other things are trustworthy. I want to... Um, play a cut from uh, Senate Minority Leader Republican Mitch McConnell, who last week defended tying Ukrainian aid to demands over border policy. I want to remind everybody of the importance of Ukraine. They have fought one of our biggest adversaries for almost two years now. Um, We're not losing track of that. It's just that border security applies to us as well. And that's why we've emphasized so much that subject in the last few days. Uh, Joan Grieve, I wonder, I mean, that's where you hear a split, right? Because I think we're seeing a very different posture from the new House Speaker, Mike Johnson, than from someone like Mitch McConnell. Absolutely. Yes. And, you know, even though, you know, even though Senator McConnell is, uh, he's been very um, kind of so far, he's been very supportive of tying uh, border security to uh, Ukraine aid. I think it's important to remember that he is still generally very supportive of sending more aid to Ukraine. And that does set him apart from uh, the new House Speaker, Mike Johnson, and also many members of the House Republican Conference, because there is, you know, in the House Republican Conference, there is some pretty widespread skepticism about the even the need to send more aid to Ukraine. And so, you know, there was I, I thought there was a really interesting moment earlier this month when uh, President Biden was really encouraging Congress to approve more aid. And he was saying that he was willing to make significant compromises on the border. And he said something like Republicans have to decide if they actually want a solution or if they just want the issue of border mm-hmm. security. And I think that to many people, Republicans do just want the issue of border security. We're heading into a really important election year. And they feel like this is something that they could really, you know, potentially make uh, major gains, uh, like, you know, politically, if they really hammer this issue. And of course, if they do actually reach a compromise, then it could look like a win for Joe Biden. Depend- but of course, you know, as the congressman was telling us earlier, that many Democrats might not consider a win, depending on what the specifics are of that deal. But, you know, it right. Is but something- then it could maybe help Biden with younger voters along the board. You know, I mean, I think that there's right. like a lot of complicating factors there politically for him. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it is just, you know, we will have to see, but it is important to remember that even though someone like Mitch McConnell is still very supportive of sending Ukraine uh, money to Ukraine, many Republicans are not. And like, where is Mike Johnson? Because I feel like he was for Ukrainian aid before he was against it. Like, is this just him sort of settling into this idea of being the House Speaker for, uh, you know, a, a Republican Party that's really run by the MAGA wing, by, by pretty far right extremists? Yeah, that's right. He So uh, Mike Johnson initially, right after the war started, right after the initial invasion, uh, he did voice support for Ukraine. And I believe he did vote for in favor of one of those initial uh, aid packages. But in the months since, he has really turned against uh, the uh, turned against supporting Ukraine. He has uh, voted against a number of uh, measures aimed at supporting Ukraine. 
And uh, he really does seem to be more in line with the uh, sort of Ukraine skeptics, uh, skeptics in his uh, in his conference. And I think that also reflects the fact that, you know, uh, you know, the previous House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, was more supportive of sending aid to Ukraine. And it was, in fact, one of the issues that sort of resulted in him being ousted from that role, because, you know, there were hard right Republicans like Matt Gates who were saying that basically he was working too much with the White House to get uh, Ukraine aid uh, uh, you know, passed through Congress. And so I think that Mike Johnson is very aware of that dynamic. And I think he, uh, in the interest of wanting to hold on to his job, is kind of uh, is sort of hesitant to uh, push for more Ukraine aid. And that could be um, a really uh, important factor in these uh, negotiations. If you're just joining us, I'm Marisa Lagos here for Mina Kim. Uh, You're listening to Forum from KQED Public Radio. I want to bring in some more of our listeners. Michael tweets in World War II, we feared we would lose our neutrality if we supplied the allies with arms. How can we keep supplying Ukraine with arms without Russia considering us a combatant? Um, <laughs> Stephen Pfeiffer, I've heard you talk about like we we've been trying to thread some really interesting needles here, including like which, um, you know, arms are used for what purposes. Correct. I mean, how is the U.S. trying to think about that? Yeah. No, the administration has said going back to the beginning of, uh, well, 2022, that on the one hand, they want to support Ukraine. On the other hand, they want to avoid a direct NATO-Russia military clash. And those are the right two goals. Uh, I believe that over the last 18 months, the administration, when they balance those goals, has been a bit too cautious. You know, what we see now is, you know, the West has provided Ukraine with tanks, uh, with the HIMARS rocket long-range system. Uh, the training has begun for, F- for Ukrainian pilots on F-16s. And while the Russians haven't liked it, the Russians have not really reacted in a very uh, surprising way. Um, the Russians haven't drawn very good red lines, and, and they, 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 I think, sort of accept the fact that the West was going to arm Ukraine. Now, I do believe Moscow has a red line. Uh, I believe if the West sent troops into Ukraine, then, then we would find ourselves in an out-and-out NATO-Russia war. Yeah. But bear in mind that today, like 65 to 70% of the Russian ground forces are preoccupied in Ukraine. If you're the Minister of Defense of Russia, the last thing you want now is a war with NATO. Yeah. Um, Jonathan in Mountain View has a question. Go ahead. Or a comment. Hi. <laughs> hey, yeah. Jonathan. Thank you. Thank you. So my my comment is exactly about the red lines. And when we consider the effectiveness of the counteroffensive, we also, I think, as part of the West and I think even the media, need to reflect a little bit on our own flat footedness in getting Ukraine the assistance that they needed. We were delayed in giving them attackums delayed in the M1 Abrams and incredibly delayed between the U.S. and Germany, especially um, with F-16s. And when they started that counteroffensive, they barely had air support. Yes, they had HIMARS, but the delays that we had allowed the Russians to entrench themselves, build trenches, build mines, build Tokmak, build their supply lines, and the Ukrainians are actually highly effective at destroying Russian supplies uh, behind enemy lines. So when our politicians are playing games with this, this is what they're doing. They're giving the initiative to the Russians. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks for the call. Uh, Nancy and Campbell, go ahead. Hi. Ever since 
before the Russians invaded, when they were massing troops on the borders of Ukraine. I've been wondering why didn't the world do things then to show that we were not going to tolerate them invading? Why didn't we impose sanctions then? Why didn't we, you know, have Yeah. Thanks, Nancy. That's a great question. Stephen Pfeiffer, I mean, this also goes to the fact that the sanctions we have imposed haven't actually been as effective as I think the West had hoped. Yeah, I think there's a couple of points to make. One is, in retrospect, um, I believe the West should have responded more uh, with harsher sanctions uh, back in 2014 when Russia used military force to seize Crimea and then illegally annexed it. And then when the Russians got involved in the fighting in Donbass and eastern Ukraine, uh, and that might have been a useful message. Although at the end of the day, I'm not sure it would have prevented Vladimir Putin from what he did last February. As for the sanctions, uh, yes, I have been disappointed in the impact of the sanctions. Uh, they're not doing as quickly a job on hitting the Russian economy as I thought, in part because the Russians have been very smart about creating loopholes. We have to close down those loopholes. If we can do that, I think the sanctions will have a greater impact. And although Putin talks about the Russian economy growing by 3% this year, actually, if you look at Russian budgeting, basically Russia has doubled the amount it now spends on defense. Mm. So that increase is driven in almost entirely by increased defense spending. And it's also coming at a cost like high inflation. uh, And it's not clear that the Russian budget can sustain these expenditures. So the sanctions may have a greater impact as time goes on. We are going to have to leave it there. That was Stephen Pfeiffer, affiliate at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University and former ambassador to Ukraine. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Also here this hour, Joan Grieve, senior political reporter of The Guardian, breaking down all the craziness of Washington. (laughs) Thank you, Joan. Thank you so much. Earlier, we were joined by Democratic Congresswoman Nanette Barragon. She represents California's 44th Congressional District in Los Angeles and is chair of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. We were talking about the war in Ukraine and the battles in Washington, D.C. over military aid. And thank you all for all of your wonderful calls. We really appreciate how engaged our listeners were. I'm Risa Lagos in today for Mina Kim. She'll be back tomorrow. Stick around. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.